presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I am chairman of the board of Common Sense Institute. Thank you for joining us today. Today's conversation involves the topic of regulating greenhouse gas emissions. Recently, the state launched its Greenhouse Gas Pollution Reduction Roadmap. The roadmap outlines some potential state actions which would help to comply emission reduction standards set in 2019 legislation HB 19-1261. The overall targets are a 26% reduction by 2025, a 50% reduction by year 2030, and a 90% reduction by 2050 all relative to the emission levels of 2005. Currently, state greenhouse gas emissions are somewhere between 10 and 15% below 2005. And the latest projections, inclusive of recent policy changes, indicate more policy changes will be required to achieve the state's targets. This means that new regulations and legislative changes are aiming to double the emissions reductions over the next four years that we have seen as a state in the last 15. Significant policy action has already been targeted at electric power generation by public utilities, along with transportation and oil and gas production. While policy is still moving in multiple fronts, our built environment, including commercial, residential, industrial buildings, is now squarely in the sights of regulators and policymakers. And given we all own or rent homes and work or shop in commercial buildings, the impacts of these changes will eventually lead to potentially large changes for millions of Coloradoans. To get started today uh, and to help us navigate this topic, I have the pleasure of being joined by Dave Davia, the EVP and CEO of Rocky Mountain MCA. That's the Association of Mechanical and Plumbing Contractors. Dave is also a member of Common Sense Institute's Board of Directors. By the way, Dave, how big is the association? Earl, we're about 200 members strong. And I also have the pleasure of being joined by Kathy Marsner. Kathy is the Executive Director of the Colorado Chapter of NAIOP, a commercial real estate and development association. And tell me, Kathy, how big is your organization membership? Well, Earl, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, I'm honored to join you today. NAOP Colorado has about 650 members in Colorado and the National Association has just over 20,000 in North America. Okay, it's large. Both of you, I'm really looking forward to discussing and hearing your unique perspectives. Kathy, let's start with you. You're a member of Denver's Climate Action Task Force, which developed Denver's Climate Action Plan and recommendations. Can you tell us a little more about uh, NAIOP, which you have to some extent, but maybe a little bit more, particularly with regards to Denver's Climate Action Task Force and your view of how that might be impacting the building emissions regulations that we have and what will be coming down the pipeline. Thanks, Earl. Great question. Um, NAOP Colorado, as you said, is a commercial real estate development association. Our primary members are owners, developers, and investors in commercial real estate. 
But our full membership includes everyone involved in the process from taking bare, a bare piece of ground, bringing it through development, lease up, and then maintenance going forward and making it a great investment product um, as we go forward. My involvement with the process of developing policies around greenhouse gas emissions really started a number of years ago when Denver did their energy benchmarking program. They had a task force that brought people together to focus on that issue. And then uh, the next issue that came before us was the Green Roof Initiative. And I had the good fortune then to co-chair the campaign in opposition to that with Dave. Then I became a member of the Green Roof Task Force once that passed. And as part of the Green Roof Task Force, we were able to bring a lot of people with very different ideas to the table and come up with a complete replacement for the green roof ordinance. Um, and we repla- we're, we're able to replace that with the green building ordinance. And then to be um, sort of a glutton for punishment, if you will, the city came back and asked me if I would participate on the um, climate action task force. And because I knew how important this issue is to our members, um, we said yes and participated. It's important to our members because, you know, for a long time, Earl, our members have been responsible citizens um, and wanting to participate in um, making our city and our state, you know, the best that it can be. And the built environment to us, it's sort of like, any other type of infrastructure that you have, you know, roads and and those things, the built environment is that infrastructure for people. So it's where we live, it's where we play, it's where we work. And so it's important that, um, that we're making certain that we're developing in a way that is responsible. Yeah, Kathy, I want to, I was astonished and I want you to kind of talk to this if you could for a second. Nationally, your uh, situation with regards to buildings and commercial real estate represent about 12% of the greenhouse. In Colorado and Denver, it's 49%. I have read a bit of material that says, hey, the most immediate impact we can possibly have in trying to control greenhouse, uh, the carbon and carbon emission is in the building arena. How are your, how are your folks going to, I mean, how, are they embracing this? What's it going to cost them? What kind of capital expenditures do you think they have to be ready to to incur to make the massive amount of change that's being suggested as soon as their uh, report is suggesting it needs to be done? Well, therein uh, is the big question, Earl. It's um, and, and it's a hard one to get your hands around. Some of those statistics that you talked about really can vary depending on what building types you include in the statistics. So here in Denver, included in those statistics about buildings being the being 40% of the emissions, they've included pretty much everything, commercial, industrial, agricultural, warehouse, residential, retail. So I think nationally in some of the statistics, those things are parsed out separately. Um, but your question about how do we find a way to address these things that are coming at us, 
probably previously to last month, I would have said there are three different areas that we look at when we're trying to develop a good public policy that addresses greenhouse gas emissions. And those were, are technological, they have to be technologically feasible. They have to be fiscally attainable and they have to encourage eager compliance. Now, after what happened last month in Texas and last summer in California, I would add to that, that it has to make the grid reliable. So really those four things are what we look at when we're looking at evaluating policies. And when I sit on task forces like the Green Roof Task Force or the Climate Action Task Force, or now I'm sitting on the Denver Energize, the Energize Denver Task Force, which is responsible for figuring out how to implement the Climate Action Task Force. I make certain all the time I'm bringing up the questions, is what you want us to do technologically feasible? Is it fiscally attainable? Can you get eager compliance? And will it help make the grid reliable? Another follow-up question, if I could. When you read your report, you talk about a $3 million, a $3 billion investment, I believe, and 11, uh, 20, I guess a 12 to $22 billion return if you're able to accomplish all that you're considering. That sounds pretty compelling, but hey, I'm just a practical business guy, okay? We own a building. And from what I can tell, in you're, you're talking about building at homes, at a minimum, you're talking about electric you know, electrification versus gas. What else are you talking about? Do we have to convert everything from gas, uh, energy, heating, and uh, things like that to electric? What else do we as owners of property that we already have to do? What will we have to do and where's the money coming from? Great question. Um, One of the things that the Climate Action Task Force looked at was separating out existing building stock from new construction because the new construction building codes are were already moving towards new construction being net zero energy. The city, they've not been shy about saying that they actually want to eliminate the use of natural gas in the city because they want to eliminate all carbon fuels. Well, they're committed, I believe, aren't they, by 2030 to uh, 20, total? Yeah, 2040. Go ahead. Yeah, they're, they're committed okay. by 2040. But I think even the city understood that um, while that might be pot, might be more attainable for new construction, that for the existing stock, it's going to be very difficult. And while they've said there'll be no natural gas usage by 2040, we were able to get them to add in the phrase, where possible. Because we know that there are going to be some instances in the city where you just can't, for whatever reason, whether it's logistics or finances or whatever the reason might be, you just can't do the conversion. We wanted to make certain that we weren't doing harm to anyone by requiring these. So we kept pointing out to the task force, those of us who are from the built environment, to say, you know, what you're asking citizens to do, particularly homeowners, to convert from your natural gas heating now to electric heating is going to be prohibitively expensive. 
for those members of our community that that are already stretched. And that doesn't even necessarily mean the people who don't have the funds or maybe low income or marginalized communities, but even in light of what happened last year in COVID and the shutdowns and the fact that you know, commercial owners are having to deal with folks who are either getting eviction moratoriums or they're getting rent abatements. Any funds that a commercial owner might have had in their capital improvement bucket aren't there anymore. They're just simply gone because they had to be used to pay for their loans to the bank or to help their tenants get through anything. So it's going to be difficult. Um, And I think that's part of why you see two more ballot initiatives in Denver to try and raise significant amounts of money, because even the environmental supporters of this realize that they're very far away from having the money to do everything they want to do. Kathy, thank you so much for the insight. Dave, uh, you've been closely following this topic for a while now. Tell us a bit more about the Rocky Mountain MCA and your involvement in this particular issue. Sure. Thank you, Earl. And thanks to CSI for putting on these podcasts. I do appreciate the opportunity. You know, here at the Trade Association, we represent mechanical plumbing and HVAC contractors. Um, I think it's safe to say that we have been part of the uh, environmental movement and part of the support behind migrating from you know, higher water usage toilets to low flow toilets, high efficiency hot water heaters and air conditioners and furnaces um, in the residential setting, commercial setting and in the industrial setting. So we've been doing this work uh, for many, many years already without any kind of mandate because it's the responsible thing to do. Uh, it's the way in which the industry is moving and it's the what the consumer uh, and end user is requiring. So we've been, as Kathy said, uh, kind of in the trenches with her and her members uh, working to understand what the, the new mandates are going to require, you know, and, and quite frankly, um, you know, I would say a building is like a body. You can't expect a 50-year-old body to perform the same way a 20-year-old body does. Um, and, you know, even though they're great orthopedes, you know, uh, you can replace a lot of knees and shoulders and uh, joints and things like that, but it still doesn't operate like a building that was just built. Um, and so, you know, I think there has to be some pause in policy making to, to comprehend and understand what are we going to do from an existing building stock and how do we help increase the efficiencies, lower the carbon footprint for those. But certainly, and Kathy spoke to this earlier, if you look at, you know, new building codes and new buildings coming online, certainly those can be designed differently than those that are already in place. I think in, you know, the the region here, um, the average building, you know, we we have a lot more older buildings than we have new buildings. And the policy decisions or the policy proposals uh, didn't really contemplate those. Uh, It just focused on a flat mandate and a flat restriction. And I would say, you know, there's there's the stair-stepping that you went through in the very beginning, but that 90% mandate number by 2050 that's technology that hasn't even been developed. We don't even know what that product looks like from an installation and an operation perspective, 
Um, and so there's really not a whole lot of forgiveness given to stuff that hasn't been completed. Rewind 10 years ago, I don't think Tesla was an organization, let alone a car maker. Um, and I could be wrong factually, but the point I'm trying to make is now look at how far that technology is advanced and how readily available those vehicles are. I think the building stock and built environment needs some of that creative ingenuity to take place um, without the uh, kind of the, the cloud hanging over the head that says, here are your mandates and here are your numbers. Dave, that leads perfectly into my next question. The 2021 legislation legislative session uh, is underway, and and I mentioned before the emissions regulations building uh, uh, that's in HB 19-1261. Do you think that what they're proposing takes into account what you just described as the conundrum that you all have with the older buildings and newer buildings? Is it reflective of uh, reality, or what do you see the issues being there? that maybe we ought to be aware of and maybe try to correct if it can be corrected? Well, that's a complex topic, Earl. Good question, though. Um, and what I would say to you is there's really kind of three different movements afoot currently. There is what is happening at municipality levels, like Denver, like Boulder, like Fort Collins. Um, and those don't necessarily intersect with or contemplate what the state is doing. Uh, and there's a hundred great legislators down there with um, varying views and opinions and ideas and every legislator gets five bills. Um, so I know we're gonna see more uh, environmental focus legislation in 2021. And then there's a bill that you mentioned 1261 that passed in, in 2019. The rulemaking for some of that has already taken place at the AQCC or the Air Quality Control Commission Division, which is a part of the Colorado Department of Health and Environment. Um, and so if you think about it from a process perspective in the Rocky Mountain region, and if each one of these is a, is a mountain peak and, you know, the building in, uh, environment is walking through the valley and, you know, every different policy decision is coming from different mountains, you know, it's, it's, it's not cohesive, it's not collaborative. Uh, this year, we're likely to see uh, Representative Kipp's bill come back on benchmarking and performance standards, albeit it's going to have a different form. Um, and so we're going to see some of that. Uh, we're also going to see other uh, legislation on, you know, trying to help reduce the carbon footprint and help the environment. Uh, Denver, for example, has a ballot initiative that a group came together on, on a carbon tax that we're gonna see this November before the electorate called uh, uh, Polluters Must Pay. And uh, it's essentially a tax on the more you use, the more you're taxed. Natural gas, sorry, is taxed 10 times more than electricity. So the, the push and the incentive is to get off of natural gas and move to electricity. That's not really being tackled at the legislature, but at a municipal level through a citizen-initiated ordinance. It seems to me that all you're doing is you're making the bottom two quintiles of our economy end up paying more for this than, uh, and taking more of their income to pay for this than the top two quintiles. And when you call it income inequality, I don't see where that quite fits into that, but let's go on if we could. 
regarding the legislation to impose building benchmarking with performance mandates for larger buildings, a recent study conducted, conducted by CSI in coordination with the Colorado Real Estate Alliance found that 45% of respondents would not be able to comply. Kathy, you kind of got to this a few minutes ago and did not know whether they'd be able to comply, which you in essence were talking about a new you know, kind of a tax with the performance mandates without incurring direct costs, which building owners had not had no expectations for, and it's gonna impact their you know, positive returns, which in, any of us that are in real estate, and I've been a real estate investor for 50 years, if you don't have positive returns, all you do is you're running down your facility. You don't have the dollars to maintain your property. So in essence, that could contribute to the rundown of properties or more rundown properties if they don't have the money. So in light, of the impacts of COVID-19 and the advancement of performance mandates prior to having a more complete picture on the costs, what do you see the challenges uh, the buildings face when trying to comply with such a mandate? Earl, that's exactly why when we were having this discussion with the city of Denver, we encouraged them to remove the performance requirements from their benchmarking bills. So, um, and and that's what that's the position that NAOP Colorado has taken on the the bill that will be um, before the legislature this year that Dave mentioned Representative Kipp's bill. Um, we will be opposed to the bill unless the performance requirements are mandated out and the fines that then go along with those performance requirements, um, which are very draconian. Uh, our members are completely behind finding out how much energy they're using and then finding out what ways they can use to reduce them. Most of our members are aware of the PACE financing program and those who can take advantage of it, but it's not necessarily easy to use the PACE program. You have to have capacity in your equity or your funding stack to be able to absorb that cost, although that cost can then stay with the building. But the way this particular bill is written, um, you have to have a Energy Star score of at least a 75 to be considered a high performing building. Now, what does that mean? So every building across the country can provide their energy information into this Energy Star program run by the EPA, and they get a score for their building. The buildings are averaged across the nation. So you're using all of the nation for your buildings, size and similarity of uses and those sorts of things. But then it's averaged based on, on what your elevation is, what your, you know, whether you're like here, we're in a high desert, or if you're in California or whatever. So if you don't hit that score of 75, some of the performance requirements now are that you have to put in, uh, you have to reduce your energy use by 15% or figure out how to get to that, that score. And that's incredibly difficult to be able to do. Um, you know, yes, you can do easy things like change out all of your light bulbs. And generally that will get you your first 15% reduction. But the problem with this bill is it's ongoing. And so all of these cycles will repeat. And there's going to be a point at which you've made all the improvements you can to your building and you can never get it any better. 
Now, the challenge that this then lays over you is the penalty section of this bill. If you're not continuing to improve the energy use of your building, let's say you've hit a wall and you can't improve anymore, you could end up paying a $1,000 fine for noncompliance the first time. The next time that comes around, if you no longer comply, you also have to pay two cents per square foot with a minimum of a 50,000 square foot building. So your minimum is $1,000 per day, per day, until you come into compliance. Now, because you use an Energy Star scoring system, there will always be a certain percentage of buildings that don't, com- that don't comply. And so it almost seems like it's a combined way to get energy savings with a permanent funding supply because you will have buildings who just can't comply. I've gone through a lot of my 50 years of experience. I've gone through a lot of regulations. And let me tell you what you're telling me. It'll be interesting how our listeners feel about it. What you're telling me is that uh, that small property owner or somebody that's a small business person owning property, it's going to have a tough time, particularly if they don't, if they're a less than 75 star. And uh, that, in essence, every time I've seen it, suggested that the winners are going to be the big outfits, are going to be the organizations that have large amounts of capital that can make decisions with regards to how they want to allocate it. And they have the funds to, in essence, do what you're talking about and in turn, they're going to be picking up properties from the single owners or the small owners because they don't have the capabilities. Um, I've seen it time and time again. Dave, you've, uh, you're watching this. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, to the point you just made, Earl, you know, some of those owners are apartment buildings, um, condominiums. You know, there's such pressure based upon attainable housing and attainable housing pricing. There are great owners that do great things for their tenants, but there's also going to be a cost that gets associated and passed on. And then if we're going to put a financing mechanism in place through higher utility rates, they're going to pay there as well. And so there is a lot of pressure uh, to reduce the cost of housing. In this case, increase the environmental awareness to a point where we start to lower the carbon footprint. And I make no mistake about it. I totally understand uh, the proposition. I'm a fifth generation Denver native. I love looking at the mountains and enjoying them. Uh, so I, I get I get the um, the concerns there. But, you know, I just, I mean, at some point in time, these, these buildings owners and developers and people who have to maintain them, there, there's, there's, a, there's a scale that gets tipped to where financing doesn't work, to where all the things that you just talked about uh, either don't work or can't pencil out. And so that's a concern for us. Um, stepping back to your very initial question about COVID-19 and the impacts, social distancing and all the protections and precautions because of COVID, um, couple that with, you know, kind of the 2008 recession where people were kept carrying heavy inventories um, and they've switched their model to just-in-time or low inventories. Impact that with COVID uh, where we don't have uh, factory workers working in factories on a full scale because of the requirements to social distance. That means that the products that we install aren't as readily available as they once were. Those two things 
together. I think that that's something we have to be mindful of. And I think that a lower supply means a higher cost. It's a market equation. Um, and so, you know, couple that with additional mandates and things that we know are coming, but we don't really have a degree of certainty for. And that's really what the developers and owners and those individuals rely on is certainty. Us too. We, un- we have to understand that we're going to be held to a standard and there's a pathway to be able to get there. But as I alluded to earlier, Earl, the 90% reduction by 2050, we don't even know what that technology is that we're going to be installing. Do we have the workforce to do that? Do we have the technology to do that? If not, what is the training? How long does that cost, a tra- or how long does that training take and how much does it cost in order for us to be equipped to be able to support the building uh, built environment? If I could just um, echo what Dave was saying there at the end, and I think this is so, so important. You know, we've been talking about the um, the technology and the finances and, and the eager compliance, but what Dave was pointing out, if we don't have the education that, to go along with this, then we're never going to be able to attain it. We need to educate the people who are going to be installing all of this new equipment uh, or even existing equipment. We need to educate the people who are going to be maintaining this um, this equipment because it's very technical. It's it's not easy. And then we need to educate the building engineers on how to actually use the equipment because what we're finding is, yes, you can install the most efficient HVAC system, but if you don't know how to use it properly, you may be only using a small minor portion of the abilities that are in that equipment. So that education needs to happen along with these other things. And I just wanted to uh, emphasize that with what Dave was saying. Thanks, Kathy. I appreciate that. I'm going to press both of you on the on the question of you're talking about we're right down the trenches. You're talking about how do we day to day live with this and how does it affect Denver and how does it affect the builders and, and the current property owners? I want to go a little deeper on the issue for a second. If we're going to have a carbon neutral environment by 2050, uh, and I'm going to kind of put you both on the spot. Tell me if you would, what kind of infrastructure, because it's stressing electricity. Everything I've read in your report, Kathy, says, hey, it's going to be electric cars. It's going to be electric uh, utilities in the home. It's going to be electric utilities in the buildings and industry. So it's electricity, electricity, electricity. But at the counter that, no fossil fuel, of which a significant part of our current electrical grid is supported by fossil fuel. So we get rid of fossil fuel. Dave, I'm going to put you on the grid first. And Kathy, I'll give you some time to counter what he's saying or rethink it. What's that infrastructure that we're going to have to have by 9090 other than we're going to try to invent something new? What I would say to you is I think we have to have a strategy that's be all the above. And I think we have to be thoughtful. New building stock, we plan for it a certain way. Existing building stock, while it may feel good to think about not burning something and creating a greenhouse gas or a carbon release, just capping a a natural gas line, you you can't replace that energy that that building consumes overnight. The public utilities are going to have to bring in larger electrical lines and backbones into buildings in order for the electrical equipment to run. It costs a lot more to run an electric hot water heater than it does a natural gas hot water heater. 
on a monthly basis on a utility. Just like drying a load of laundry in the dryer, um, last my numbers were uh, looked at is about 27 cents to dry a load uh, with an electric dryer versus three cents to dry it with a natural gas dryer. All of this demand or uh, requirement to cut natural gas, there can be a phase-in period, um, but it's going to require the you know utilities to supply electricity different than they have in existing buildings. And that's going to take some time for the owners to finance and for the utilities to supply. And it's not something we can mandate by a, a date certain. Um, in addition, um, we have to be able to understand what this new technology that's going to come online, what that's going to take, and how we're going to have to train our individuals uh, to be prepared for that. And we can do that. We have training programs for that. Uh, but there's not just this immediate flipping of the switch that's going to, you know, automatically uh, change how a building, an existing building, consumes its energy. It's going to require engineers to engineer. It's going to require people in our industry and trades, the electricians, to be able to go in and retrofit these buildings. And it, it, it is not a, a magical process that you just wave a wand and it's done. Kathy, you've, uh, you've had a chance to listen to him. What's your view of the infrastructure that uh, we're going to have to see in place to make all this happen for 90% uh, and carbon-free by 2050? Earl, I think we're going to have to figure out how to bridge the difference between what is our aspirational goal, which I believe is what the Climate Action Task Force report is. I think it's very aspirational versus what is actually implementable. I'll go back to Dave when he pointed out the um, the Teslas. And I always think this is fascinating. Did you realize that there was actually an electric roadster before there was a Model T? I did know that. The, not many people do. Not many people do. And electric roadsters were very, very popular. But the problem was once the Model T came online, the Model T cost was $650 electric roadster cost was $1,750. So while the technology existed, the fiscal attainability didn't. And until they figured out how to get those together, now you have Teslas and, and, um, and Priuses um, now that are, you know, more financially feasible, but not for a lot of people. They're still $25,000 and, and up. The thing I think you have to be aware of is while you're trying to bridge from aspiration to implementation, I agree with Dave 100%. We have to have an all of the above platform in order to make this work. I, I think it's great to think that you might be able to get to an all renewable grid, but you can't do that reliably, which we've seen. And you also have to look at some of the unintended consequences of, of going to an all renewable grid, the battery storage power that you would have to have in order to store the wind and the solar because the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow at the appropriate speed. I mean, not only did we see that wind turbines can freeze, you can't use them when the wind is blowing too hard. Um, because the motors burn out. So when the, so you have to look at how you're actually creating those batteries and some of the 
components of those batteries um, have to be strip mined to get them. So if we're trying to be environmentally responsible on how we use energy, then why are we not also insisting on being environmentally responsible on how we get the products that we need? So bridging that gap between aspirational and implementable, I think is going to be the hardest part and where the crux is, you know, the, the rubber is going to meet the road. I don't know that any of us know exactly how to make that happen, but I would say we've got to sort of slow down this whole rush to say, if we're, you know, we have to do this in seven years or the planet's going to, we're never going to be able to get our arms around it. Well, we can't get our arms around it here in Colorado if China, according to Reuters last month, has 247 gigawatts of coal power plants under development right now. You know, it's we can't destroy our economy in order to be aspirational, I don't think. Well, you know, one of the things that strikes me is I don't see how any of this, at least the suggestions put forth, um, is suggesting that the consumer is going to spend any less in light of uh, what we're talking about. And if the consumer is 67 to 70% of the economy and they're going to spend more, well, guess what? That's less economic growth. And I didn't hear either one of you say that productivity in the United States is going to improve because of what we're talking about. And all of the listeners know that productivity gain plus labor growth is the foundation for potential GDP. So if productivity is not going to improve, doesn't seem to me like there's an economic win-win here for the economy, even though we said that there's $3 billion will create 11 to $22 billion of benefits in other ways. Am I missing something, Kathy? And Dave, I'd sure appreciate your comments before we close. No, you're absolutely right in that um, the consumer is going to end up paying more. Building owners are going to end up paying more. Taxpayers are going to end up paying more. So there is an argument to be made that as you're creating more um, of these renewable products, the solar panels and more of the wind farms, um, and you're doing some of the education we talked about before, that that you're going to be providing some economic benefit to people. Um, but I don't see how that is how that outweighs the additional costs you're going to have. And and we've only sort of lightly touched on, um, you know, the, the equality issue of how you apply this to low-income communities, marginalized communities. They can't afford to do these types of upgrades themselves. And, and you know, how do you find the money to, to assist them? Well, Denver passed a sales tax last year for these, this exact thing. And as Dave mentioned, there's a, a carbon tax on the ballot again. And um, and if you look at this benchmarking bill, uh, you know, those um, fees and fines that are going to end up ultimately being paid by building owners are going to fund that. So, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where we're trying to weigh the environmental benefits, you know, I have grandchildren. I want my granddaughter to be able to look out at those mountains and enjoy them and be able to see them. But I don't want the economy destroyed in order to make that happen. There has to be a balance and we have to figure out how to find that. 
Dave, uh, I appreciate uh, any closing comments you have on the topic. So Earl, I think the only thing um, that I would add to what Kathy's just shared is, you know, uh, there has to be an incentive for building owners to be able to do this. And that could come in the way of tax credits or breaks uh, to incentivize this type of uh, change or transformation. Um, certainly that is not being talked about or contemplated. Actually, the legislature is talking about repealing uh, tax credits. And, and so therein lies, I think, the tool. Everybody, I think, can agree that uh, saving the environment and being able to save this wonderful state and the backdrop that we all love and enjoy, the quality of life it brings with it is paramount. However, what we have now is competing ideas on how we get there. And when you add those competing ideas, one on top of the other, on top of the other, it compounds the problem uh, in, in not maybe the environmental problem, but the fiscal problem and the ability to get from point A to point B. And so, you know, I think there needs to be a pause. I think there needs to be people focus on 1261 and how do we implement that in the right and most thoughtful way? And what changes is that going to need in order to be successful to save this beautiful state? Well, you've tossed down something new for the conversation. I'm glad we're going to be able to end up on it. And that is maybe the free enterprise system can respond with a few incentives in light of what we think would be uh, in the public good and the in uh, the uh, controlling greenhouse gases and uh, with some of those incentives maybe uh, the free enterprise system might be able to come up with some innovative ways which you've talked about several times we need innovative ways dave kathy i can't thank you enough for your candor and and your thoroughness with regards to this topic thanks earl thank you thanks for inviting me Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.